Welcome back to the Connecting Minds podcast. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Alex Craner. Um, he is the founder at Craner Analytics. He is the author of three books, I believe. So one of them is called Mastering Uncertainty in Commodities Trading. The other one is Alex Craner's Trend Following Bible. And I believe you have another book, Alex, called The Great Deception. Uh, can you tell us, first of all, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, your 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 work and what you do? Uh, yeah, hi, Chris. Uh, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I've, I, I'm a former hedge fund manager, and so the books you listed, yeah, two of them are about uh, investment management and commodities trading. The book called uh, Grand Deception is uh, more of a geopolitical treatise, uh, which I felt compelled to write about, even though it's not my strict, you know, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a mm. historian, but I felt compelled to write about it because I, through, through, through my work, I came into contact with certain people um, and the, the, the central character of them being uh, William Browder. And as I learned about what they do and uh, their activism, I realized that this is the network that is pushing us into World War III against Russia. And so at some point I thought like, well, somebody has to unmask these people. People have to understand what's going on here. And uh, because I thought maybe I knew more than most people about it. I thought like, well, might as well be me. So that's that's how he started. Yeah. I just thought, sort of thought I have to sit down, uh, try to put this together. Also, because if if we end up in World War Three, uh, I have to be able to tell myself that I've done everything I could to prevent it from happening. So that's how the book came about. Unfortunately, it didn't last a long time after I, I self-published it on Amazon. What year? In 2017. Okay. And I think it took about five or six weeks for it to be, uh, to be banned. Wow, dude. Because, yeah, what happened is that a, a historian um, published, uh, read the book, in the US and uh, published a, uh, a book review mm -hmm. on Huffington Post. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the book review disappeared within a few hours. And then one week later, uh, the book was uh, deleted on Amazon. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I know how it was deleted. It was uh, Amazon received a letter from one Jonathan Weiner, who is a uh, Bill Browder's lawyer, and who also worked uh, for the State Department as a as a as a as like a policy advisor to John Kerry under Obama administration, and so uh, the book was banned at that point. Then there was a publishing company named Red Pill Press. Uh, they approached know, me and yeah. they said, yeah. "Well, you know, uh, this this is a good book, and we we might be able to." republish it so they spend the next nine months combing through everything to make sure that nothing is controversial or at least that nothing couldn't be backed up sure sure that they that would make them open to lawsuits yeah we changed the title because the original title was not grand deception it was the killing of
of William Browder. And we thought like, okay, maybe the title was also potentially an offending uh, element. So we changed the title to Grand Deception and then they republished it indeed. And I think again, five or six weeks later, it was the book was banned again. It's it's available for sale now, but only from their website. Right. It's not available in Amazon or any other any other bookstore. But you offer it for free as a download along with your other two books on your website, correct? Uh, no, uh, I offer my way. trading books as free right, downloads right. because what happened is that eventually Amazon entirely canceled me. They they deleted my my whole account, uh, all the book reviews. I had I had virtually four and five star book reviews on everything. Yeah. Well, man. They deleted That's everything nice, and they uh, even stole my royalties. They could because they didn't pay me any royalties for about for ne- nearly four years. And they they just one day wrote me an email say, saying like we're we're canceling your account and we'll, we won't pay you out anything. Man, and, you got canceled but, before it was cool, Alex. Well, with Grand Deception, yes. With the, with the other books, it was only uh, about a year ago. It was in October 2021. Oh my God. Yeah. But. Uh, then they continued selling my books and one of my books called the mastering uncertainty in commodities trading it was awarded as a number one book on commodities for investors and traders and they put it on they they, they set the price at 900 euros <laughs> but not you know like i wasn't getting any of this so they continued yeah, yeah. selling my work zero for me and I thought, you know, like it's just, just the idea that people might spend 900 euros on a title that benefits only Amazon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought, no way. So I, I, I yeah. put it up on my website as, as a free download. So Jesus at least, at least I hope that nobody buys it off of Amazon. Yeah, man, that's, that is just beyond preposterous. What yeah, it is, but you know, it's a sign of the times. That's how it is. I'm not. I know yeah. I'm not the only one. They do it to many yeah, people. Yeah. Amazon is very abusive. It's really, it's really. It uh, they have a they have a very aggressive corporate culture. Uh, it's a pirate mentality. If they think mm-hmm. they can get away with it, they will yeah. do it, whether it's legal, whether it's ethical. You know, it's it's. It'll be very difficult for me to seek seek a legal recourse against Amazon. Yeah. Oh yes. You know, they they have armies of lawyers on retainer, uh, you know, yeah. hiring a lawyer can cost you easily a thousand bucks an hour. Yeah. Uh, so they yeah. know this. They know that the barriers are very high that uh, you know, struggling authors and content creators cannot even dream about uh Absolutely. doing making a lawsuit, taking a lawsuit against Amazon. So they reckon, you know, like if it's not Donald Trump or uh, you know, somebody really famous yeah, uh, they can just steal your money, and they do. So that's yeah. that's how it is. But you know, eventually chickens come come home to roost. Yeah, I know that there are many many uh, existing and upcoming new platforms that will eventually drive traffic from content creators uh, into into new alternative markets and. Uh, in the end, Amazon's going to probably pay for their for their uh, abuse. I hope so because you know, like I, <clears throat> I try for the the last couple of years or more, 
I I try as hard as I can to get away from these big, lar- uh, you know, large centralized uh, providers. So I've I'm like w- one of probably very few people that I know uh, that I don't use uh, I I don't use Android or uh, iOS for my phone. I have Graphene OS, which is a kind of a, a de-googled sort of version of of Android on my phone. Um, you know, I don't use uh, a base. I, I, I only use Google Maps once in a while, and that phone stays in a Faraday bag that you know is like hidden away, so you know it can't spy. So I've done everything I can, you know, to reduce dependence on these services for email, everything else, right? But the the hardest has been getting off of Amazon because especially I kind of live in a, a small town in the south of Portugal and there's like six different types of stores in every every city here and you know you if you want cool shit you have to use Amazon so I, I've been like racking my brain how can we decouple ourselves from these big providers so I am looking for like manufacturers of goods and service and you know providers of services here in Europe that I can, you know, use instead of Amazon for future purchases. I think it's really important that we do that. Um, and, you know, I think I, I, I am a subscriber of your Substack, uh, Alex. I think you're doing some amazing work uh, in terms of spreading awareness. And, you know, that's why I wanted to have you on because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's guys like you that we need that are, you know, pushing, pushing forward for... Um, you know, for hu- the betterment of humanity. And everybody does it in their own way, you know. Um, and what I really like about you as well is you seem to be very positive. You know, a lot of a lot of researchers in this stuff, uh, in this field, have gone very, very kind of sour. Um, what, what, okay, <laughs> and we are going to cover sort of, sort of some negative aspects. What do you think is going on right now? Is Are we truly you know potentially steps away months or like a couple of years away from world war three what do you reckon well in in a way we already are in world war three you know only it's not exactly happening the way uh the way one and world war two happened but you know the even world war one and world war two you know they they had a long gestation before before the outbreak no, before the breakout outbreak would be a right. pandemic. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, and then even after the breakout, you know, not everybody joins straight away, you know, so there's a lot of diplomacy going on to try to encourage various nations to join the war effort. And uh, we saw that with World War One, we saw it with World War Two, particularly, you know, uh, the United States only joined relatively late yeah. uh, when Germany invaded um, the Soviet Union in 1941. It wasn't just Germany; it was like a whole coalition of countries that were brought together, including, uh, you know, Romania and Hungary and Sweden and Denmark and Finland, uh, Spaniards and Italians and Croats sent sent yeah. troops and material and so on. So, it isn't exactly the black and white that then ends up in, in in the simplified versions of history that they teach us in sure. school. It's much more complicated than that. And the same sure. is going on now. This We are one, one year into the war in Ukraine, which, yeah. 
you know, could always escalate to involve a NATO country, which would then bring more NATO countries in it. But uh, visibly, visibly, uh, people are reluctant. Uh, leadership of all these nations are reluctant to get involved because they understand that, you know, a lot of bad things can happen and hardly anything good can come out of this war. But nevertheless, you know, the, 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 the secret diplomacy from the United States, well, not even so secret anymore, uh, from the United States and Britain particularly, and from certain other NATO nations and the, and the intelligence agencies are working overtime to try to escalate the conflict, to bring more nations into it, to break off the bonds between Russia and uh, nations that, that support it, to blackmail and intimidate them and sanction them and so the you know the the the, the war is evolving its nature mm-hmm. is uh, it, its nature is as as George Soros correctly characterized it as a, as a conflict between two systems of governance yeah but the you know the intensity of the conflict the, the the scope of it, you know, it, it's not just in the fields of Ukraine that is going on. It's it's going on uh, in in uh, in the in the financial domain, economic domain, global trading, and even even state terrorism. You know, as we saw with the uh, with the bombing of uh, with the destruction of the North Stream pipelines. Yeah. And it, yeah. it involves many nations in various ways. And the way that nations are involved at the moment could be different in the future. Now, obviously, the worst possible outcome would be if this escalated to a, to a nuclear exchange. Because that, you know, my understanding of that is that mm-hmm. if that happens, then all bets are, all bets are off. And I think that the, the lucky ones will be the ones who die on that day and the <laughs> unlucky ones will probably suffer the consequences which might inc- include hunger and disease and you know complete collapse of society and yeah. maybe uh die a slow agonizing death um over the over the yeah. later years we we don't know because we don't have a precedent yeah but i think that you know, while we're alive and kicking, I think everybody, everybody who's a who's a in any way protagonist of this drama should uh, agitate to make sure that this doesn't happen. Absolutely, brother. Um, just because you you are so well versed in the markets, um, and I'm quite curious to to kind of get your take on on things before we move to you know more. Uh, you know geopolitical stuff uh, what what do you think are some likely I, I think actually this morning I watched your your latest video on your YouTube channel where it's like at some conference I think in China where you talk about just basics about trading and uncertainty and uh, you put it really well that it, it's really uncertainty to, to the investor slash trader or any anybody the farmer even uncertainty is you know the thing that is um the thing that we really focus a lot of uh time and effort to to mitigate and navigate so there's a lot of uncertainty i think i believe this decade is the highest uncertainty that 
potentially we'll see in, in all of our lifetimes, people that are alive right now. Um, so with that said, uh, you know, and given that you've done quite a bit of analysis on a lot of these topics, what do you think are some lightly um, directions the markets could go? And just to kind of preamble, you know, the topics that are at least are of interest to me is so the, there's the gold, the gold bros that are like saying uh, gold will, you know, potentially 10x from here. Uh, you know, obviously we know that central banks are stockpiling gold for for years and years now. Um, do you think? Do you think uh, uh, the Fed will continue quantitative tightening? Um, do you think that the dollar will indeed collapse? Do you think that the CBDC will get ushered in as part of some type of you know potentially cyber attack that will be blamed or China, Russia, or whatever else? What do you think are the kind of the this decade? What are the? I know it's a massive question, brother. I'm sorry. But what do you think is going to happen, basically? What are some likely outcomes, at least? Well, that's that's a great question. And that's that's the question that's on pretty much everybody's mind. Yeah. Uh, the uncertainty is probably as thick as, as we've ever seen it, because we may be at the at the beginning of the end of a system that's shaped Western societies for multiple centuries, you know, depending on how you want to cut it, but it's at least between two and six centuries, maybe more. Mm. Uh, and what happens after this all unravels and as it unravels is, is, is difficult to predict. However, we know a few things pretty much for sure. And that is that we will have, uh, an inflationary unraveling. Okay, so at the moment, the Federal Reserve in the United States is in its uh, QT phase. So we have quantitative tightening. Uh, the Fed is gra very, very gradually normalizing its balance sheet. And they're le a bit less gradually hiking the interest rates. Although we we may be close to the to the end of that cycle mm -hmm. but regardless of that you know inflation won't go away they they're, they're not going to go back to their inflation target of 2.2% and then you know very recently they raised that to 2.8% mm -hmm. it's very very unlikely that, that that's going to happen you know interest rates and money monetary inflation are only two elements in the inflation formula okay so if you if you rapidly expand the uh, m2 monetary money aggregates the, the the money aggregates right that can uh, push up inflation but there's also uh, money velocity right so if if you have, I don't know, $10 trillion in circulation and money velocity is one, that's the same situation as if you have half the monetary aggregate, so $5 trillion in in circulation and monetary velocity is two. Mm -hmm. So even if the Fed hikes the interest rates and uh, reverses uh, the expansion, the, the inflation of monetary aggregates, uh, we've seen that uh, 
money velocity has started to gradually pick up and the Fed has no control over this. Okay, this is entirely uh, a market element because it reflects what, you know, like when people are comfortable holding cash, money velocity may be low. When people are worried that the purchasing power of their cash is uh, collapsing, they will be quick to get rid of it. So they will, they will try to buy things that they feel that they need. They might buy gold, silver. Uh, they might stock up on, on things that they need, or they might buy anything that they think will retain value over time, which, which, which also means that they might be buying stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you go into a, uh, into an inflationary, anyway, so just to, just to finish up the, the, the idea that we're not, going back to the 2.8% inflation rate. Uh, there's also commodity prices, which the Fed does not control. Yeah, so mm -hmm. commodity prices are very sensitive to liquidity conditions in the market. So you might even in a even in a otherwise very bullish environment for commodities, you could see commodity prices collapse rapidly at some point, you know, as we saw uh, with the with the with the pandemic three years ago, when uh, oil prices, for example, crashed, by almost 80%. Mm -hmm. That can happen in a in a shorter time span, but like the longer trend is bullish. And and many people in the markets, I think, rightly expect that over the next 10 to 25 years, we're gonna see a commodity super cycle. If you go back about 150 to 200 years, you see that there are these massive cycles in commodities markets where commodities go uh, uh, and have high prices and then they they collapse and these, these cycles take a very long time and just very recently we were at historical lows at where commodity prices were compared to other financial assets so compared to stocks bonds real estate and so forth commodities were really at 50-year lows and now we've seen this cycle only begin to turn mm -hmm. and most probably it will con commodity prices will continue to rise in nominal terms but also versus other uh, financial assets for the next 10 to 25 years okay obviously this is going to in include uh, precious metals as well so gold and silver for sure uh, are very likely to be much much higher 10 years from now than they are today i think that 10 10 times up is realistic, maybe even conservative. Maybe it'll be more than that. Really? In the next 10, 25 years? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, but, wow. you know, gold and silver, they tend to trail the commodity basket, right? Mm -hmm. um, empirically, gold and silver do appreciate with inflation, but they usually follow things like energy, industrial metals like copper, aluminum, and so forth, and, mm -hmm. and uh, agricultural commodities too. Uh, nevertheless, you know, it's, it's a very good idea to have some of your assets invested into gold and silver and to have some physical gold and silver on hand, you know, for emergencies, if there's, if there's some really really rough patches where you know maybe food becomes difficult to obtain maybe you have to 
bribe a government bureaucrat to be able to, you know, travel or, you know, yeah, do something. I don't know, get a get a bed in a hospital or I don't know what. So that's that's always a very good idea. And now, um, how the how the World War Three situation unravels, uh, we have no idea. But you know, the our our if if you if you analyze the situation down to its its basic component, our chief problem is the monetary system. You know, because everything is measured in dollars and euros and yen and so and, and pounds and so forth. And you know, the economy is only denominated in these currencies. The, the currencies don't reflect the economy. The economy is people doing what they do and exchanging, you know. A, a farmer raises his crops, you know. The baker bakes the bread. Yeah. Uh, unless, unless there's some massive natural disaster, the land still is capable of producing food. The farmers are still capable of growing the food the you know car mechanics can still repair cars and so forth so you know the economy can chug along regardless of the of the circumstances when when we had the war in in, in the in the countries of former yugoslavia the you know the, the 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 pharmacies were still fully stocked up the supermarkets were full fully stocked up you would get your car fixed you could get go to the pump and put gas in your car everything continues to function we even traded with the other side, you know, the, our enemies. Yeah. We, we, we yeah. traded back and forth, you know. They needed to buy oil. We had oil. We, we exchanged it for whatever they had. So, you know, war doesn't mean that everything comes to a grinding halt. And so people shouldn't be afraid of that. But they should be concerned about losing access to money as means of exchange. Because that's where things can grind to a halt, you know, like if... If the farmer can't pay for the fertilizers and other stuff that they need, maybe they can't raise the crops now, for, for real. If the baker can't pay for the, for, the, for the wheat, maybe they can't bake bread. If people can't pay for the bread, maybe the baker goes out of business because even though people need the bread and baker can bake the bread, the exchange cannot happen, right? Sure, sure. And so we, we need... We need alternative solutions to this, so we need uh, you know alternative currencies, and I'm not necessarily talking about Bitcoin, which has largely become an object of speculation, not a, mm -hmm. a, not a real legitimate means of exchange. You know, mo most yeah. most people who trade Bitcoin trade it for capital gains, not to sure. buy stuff, right? Sure, sure, yeah. But you know, in in crisis situations, people have always worked out local currencies, alternative. Regional currencies, uh, you know, they use, they do time banks. They use gifts. You know, they just they just share with people around themselves and receive other things. So uh, this will happen, but you know, the, the 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 real resilience will be exactly there for us to have things to exchange with other members of our community, and for us to have means of exchanging it. And it's not rocket science. You know, it can be worked out, yeah. and the the conference I've just been to last weekend in Ireland, it was exactly about that. You know, like it was local people uh, realizing that some kind of a big storm is coming. We can't tell what it what it is or what it will be like, 
but people are connecting with each other they're uh, they're talking to each other uh, they're investing in solutions for this types of emergency and i believe that even if things get ugly for a season will come through and mm-hmm. you know we'll be we'll be the better off for it and I, I actually yeah. believe that we'll be a lot better off once this whole crisis unravels. Hard times create strong men and all that. Well, yeah, but I, I think it's more than that. I think it goes beyond that. You know, it's not just uh, strong men and women and all other genders, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I think that the information infrastructure that we have today is making us a lot smarter. You know, we, humanity has never had the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, this point-to-point instant communications that, you know, in, in, encompass the whole planet. We never had that. We always depended on uh, information and narratives uh, broadcast from you know central sources like newspapers and radio and television it was relatively easy to control the narrative and to filter the information we obtained uh today this is not so easy and you can tell that the that the powers that be are kind of panicking you know they're they're, they're now gone gone hysterical about disinformation and misinformation they're like yeah. thrashing around trying to <clears throat> censor content uh, now they're you know trying because obviously they're not comfortable right if they were if they were comfortable they wouldn't be talking about this they're trying to use ai to control what's being uh, discussed between people now they had identified that the chief source of uh, disinformation and misinformation are exactly podcasts so what we're doing now <laughs> you know and then so you know like surprise, and, and, surprise. And this is very difficult because you know like we might be talking here for for an hour or two or three and so you know it's not easy for censors to you know sit through hours and hours of tens of thousands of podcasts that are that are out there to work out which ones should be censored and which ones can be allowed in the in the information universe and so they're trying with ai i have no idea how they're going to work it out but you know what while they're while they're working on their ai we're going to be reaching thousands of people who are going to be reaching tens of thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of people so they are way 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 behind and so yeah. this really radically changes the uh, the uh, the equations that they thought they would use in their ability to manipulate the public around whatever agenda they they're trying to pursue you know the pandemic yeah. the climate emergency the the war against russia and china and so forth mm-hmm. and it's really not going the way they planned and that they the way they they thought things would uh, work out and it feels to me like uh, you know these globalists are now pushing on a string trying to trying to manipulate how things evolve for sure i i i definitely agree that they the internet got away from them whatever they were planning with arpa darpanet and all that good stuff 
that <laughs> that did not transpire. And you know, I really love I love Charlie Robinson. <clears throat> I love when he when he uh, characterizes it as definitely this pandemic thing is not going according to plan because if plan A is offering fucking donuts and whatever else for people to get jabs, then, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking in the planning room, you know? Um, let, let, Alex, let, let, I want to do a fun little thought experiment if you would please humor me, bro. Let's pretend you have like a, a regular average monthly income and you have a hundred thousand euro in the bank. How would you allocate this one hundred thousand euro in terms of uh, commodities, physical resources, crypto, cash at hand in in uh, cash in the bank, cash at hand, whatever? How would you? What would you do to um, you know just? being in the best position possible for you know for the coming times uh okay good question so i would definitely uh diversify that's step one uh importantly and this is not allocation of the hundred thousand bucks importantly uh in an inflation crisis, it is very, very important to uh, downsize to keep your costs low. Okay, it's because, uh, you know, people who have uh, large car payments could be in trouble. People who have uh, uh, mortgages could be in trouble. So if you can, uh, a good way to weather the crisis would be to 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 try to keep your cost of living as low as possible. Uh, with regards to your savings, you might want to hold some of that in gold and silver. Again, physical. Uh, second, uh, you might consider buying a plot of land for agricultural purposes. Uh, realist, you know, many people think that real estate is a good hedge against inflation. It is not. Okay, so uh, prices of real estate do tend to go up in an inflation, but inflation normally far outstrips the appreciation of of uh, real estate prices um, when the um, when the inflation hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic a hundred years ago unraveled at the end of 1922 you could buy a six-bedroom villa on the outskirts of Berlin for a hundred dollars okay people lose purchasing power altogether so they don't have money to buy any real estate whereas you have a lot of people who maybe made heavy investments in real estate who need money, who are ready to sell it for whatever. And so, you know, at the time, the dollar was still gold-backed and people were so desperate that they were ready to part with their, you know, villas for a hundred dollars. This is a well, well, you know. So the idea well, that you're going to weather the, 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 the inflation by having a lot of investment in real estate is not, is not necessarily correct. Again, mm -hmm. 
it's I, I don't want to I, I don't want to sound like all gloom and doom because we don't know how the inflation is gonna is gonna go. You know, it yeah. might be it might be a horrible event like the Weimar Republic in Germany, like like places like Zimbabwe, Argentina, Venezuela, like uh, Soviet Union, and so forth. And in that case, yeah, all bets are off, and you know people are going to lose purchasing power very rapidly and in in in, in massive amounts. And in that case, things like real estate are not going to help you. However, uh, arable land, uh, land that you can use to uh, to raise chickens or grow, you know, potatoes or or vegetables or whatever, that will help you, especially if you know how to use it. Sure, that will help you weather the crisis. And, uh, you know, with regards to other assets, like uh, literally commodities and uh, uh, farmland are the only um, effective means of hedging against inflation. For the rest, uh, see what skills you have that can be useful within your local communities that you can exchange locally. You know, if you know how to cook, if you know how to fix cars, if you know how to... uh, help people with, with, with their IT and internet connections, stuff like that. Make yourself useful to your local community. Mm-hmm. Uh, strengthen these community bonds uh, and seek res- resilience in this way. And those 100,000 euros might even be very, very useful in, you know, some, some, of, these, some of these solutions might require and investments. Well, they usually require some investment. Sure, sure. And so I, I think that people ought to think about these types of things, you know, uh, learn how to fish if you can, learn how to do useful things that, you know, if, if supermarkets are are empty or, or, or close, if yeah. we end up bailed in by the banking system and suddenly, you know, like you don't have your cash, you have worthless shares of your banks. Yeah. Well, then things could get really, really difficult, and we need to think a little bit outside of the box of this matrix. Just you know, stocks, sure. bonds, precious metals, and real estate. What about cryptocurrency? Do you do you see, do you see any merit in in having some allocation there? Uh, yeah, I do, but again, only only within the the framework of diversification. You know, I think I think people shouldn't think about cryptocurrencies as, as some kind of uh, you know magic magical solution to our all our problems i would say like if you have a hundred thousand bucks maybe put you know thirty thousand into farmland put uh, twenty thirty thousand into gold and silver put twenty thirty thousand uh, or maybe even less into into things like bitcoin okay um i think that we don't know what's going to happen with with cryptocurrencies. We don't know what's going to happen with Bitcoin. You know, when people think like, how low could it go? I always tell them, well, it could go to zero. Yeah. You know what? There's no guarantees that Bitcoin is going to be anything ten years from now because uh, it, it it is. Let's say that the technology is is very impressive and extremely useful. It could be a game changer for humanity, but as a means of exchange, you know. It could be a game changer when you can maybe go into a shop and pay for your bread and milk with Bitcoin or buy your coffee with Bitcoin. At that point, it's a it's a it's a massive game game changer. 
But just as an investment thing, it's 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 become just another thing that fluctuates, like gold, like yeah. silver, like 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 oil, you know. Yeah. So it's uh, it's again, it's a legitimate investment to diversify into, but it's not necessarily a, a solution to everybody's all of everybody's asset problems. It also looks like it's become just another part of the 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 greater market, you know, Wall Street's portfolio of assets to manipulate uh you know with the the futures um uh you know coming into play as well so i think i think um the other thing is also for anyone kind of that follows a little bit of what the world economic forum uh do i'm sure you you're one of those folks uh, um you know the the latest sort of there was a paper they published quite recently and uh i think that their managing director dude i forget jurgen something he said he believes there will be a catastrophic and these are that's the word he used you know catastrophic uh cyber attack in the next couple of years um and you know the word catastrophic I think we're very desensitized um for many reasons we're very desensitized to w- words like awesome incredible catastrophic you know what I mean like like when when people of of, of that uh uh level uh of insider when they say catastrophic like catastrophic is like you're fucking like the titanic hitting an iceberg that's like your fucking plane hitting the side of a mountain that's when you actually think about what a catastrophe like in in my language in bulgarian katastrofa means like car crash like when your car crashes into another car that's a catastrofa you know what i mean so um com- uh, things like digital assets and uh, I, I the way i i envision it like a worst case scenario if the power goes out for a month or whatever or even a week all around or a whole region a whole continent um when the power goes back you can bet your sweet ass that uh the uh, equities are going to have the biggest gap down in their history ever uh, and everything is going to be like down 80 80 90% and anyone everyone will be trying to you know run run for the door but you know maybe they will be uh the powers that be or orchestrating these events maybe they'll be buying the bottom or maybe they're you know god knows but um all of these digital assets won't be really worth a damn then or they might be worth a hell of a lot less so you, you could effectively if you, all your wealth is in them you could effectively lose your wealth 80 90% like in a in a day or in in a you know if if a cyber attack does indeed occur the way the worst case scenario at least um that uh, that could happen what do you what's your thoughts on that i don't know it's very hard to it would be very hard for me to imagine what was go, what's going to happen with 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 that I, i i don't know what a cyber attack would look like i don't know what a catastrophic cyber attack might look like mm. um yeah. what would be the consequences of it um it's difficult to say chris i yeah. uh, it is if if we lost the internet from from one day to the next and it never came back well you know that would be 
that would be a shame. But you know, we we've been around for thousands of years without the internet. So you know, the you know people people will work it out. It would be a shame not to be able to connect and share information. You know, in real time across the world and be and be shielded from the from the from the hail of bullshit that is always being uh, thrown our way by 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 the by the so-called legacy media. Yeah. Uh, but still, you know, uh, life goes on. You know what? You need you need a roof over your head, and you need uh, food on your table primarily. Uh, and so that's that's the those will be the priorities in in any emergency situation what's going to happen to financial assets is hard to say because you know in 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 conditions where you have very high levels of inflation uh stock markets tend to go vertical they tend to go up it doesn't matter you know if the companies are profitable what the valuations are uh, people want to be rid of their paper currency because they're afraid that it's losing purchasing power every day. And it's better to own anything than to be sitting on cash. So, you know, maybe they everybody plows their money into 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 the stocks. And then, you know, you get you get this, you know, we saw this in many, you know, again, Weimar Germany, Venezuela, uh, Zimbabwe, Argentina. Israel in 1986. Uh, it's it's not because these countries are doing well economically. It's because people completely lost uh, confidence in the in the value of the currency. Yeah. So, uh, on the other hand, you know, if you have a if you have a an inflationary unraveling that is more gradual that maybe spans a, a period of 10 years, like we had in the United States in the 1940s, uh, in Japan in the 1930s and 1940s, in, in the UK in the 1930s, in, in the US in the 1970s. Well, in these, in these circumstances, the stock market might collapse. You know, it might have, it might go into a bear market. Uh, we haven't seen a serious bear market in the last 40 years mm -hmm. and people always think that the bear market is like a 20 30 50 percent correction yeah uh, no a bear market can be a 90 percent correction and it might take 20 or 30 years for asset prices to come back where they were i mean uh japanese stock market went into a bear market in uh, in 1990 it peaked exactly on the last day of 1989. From there, it collapsed by 82%. And it's still about 30% below the peak value from uh, 1989. So that's a bear market. And so if yeah. you're just long stocks and bonds, you might take a huge loss and it might not even recover within your lifetime. So how it's going to play out, whether it's going to be one of those explosive episodes of inflation and everything collapses in a very short order, you know, which could be, you know, a year or two or three, um, or it's going to be a longer brewing crisis that might be 10 or 15 years long. We don't know. 
depending on that, scenarios might be different. Uh, and I don't have the answer to how it's going to yeah. go. I believe that for sure. for for economies like Japan and United Kingdom and probably Europe as well, uh, we're probably looking at a, at a fairly drastic crisis in the near future. United States might be able to finagle and kick the can down the road a bit further and maybe have a somewhat softer landing than than Europe, Japan, the UK. Uh, but you know, time will tell and we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually quite curious. Would you mind telling me what the Yugoslav war was like for you, kind of from your perspective? Oh, it was, it was bizarre in some ways because first and foremost, practically, up until a few days before the war broke out, I think that most of us thought that it was impossible. We, we, we all thought no way, no way could a war break out. Because, you know, people of Yugoslavia were culturally, even ethnically, and as families, they were very, very intertwined. I'm, I'm a child of a mixed marriage. My father uh, is Croatian and my mother is Serbian. And there were many people like that, you know. Uh, mixed, mixed between different nationalities. Um, you know, we had, we had Orthodox Christians, Catholics, Muslims, all mixed in the same community. And, you know, we didn't really know who was who and nobody cared so much. And to think that all these people might turn against each other and, and go to war was a, was a very difficult leap of imagination. So I, I, I thought that it wouldn't. How it old wouldn't be... were you roughly? Sorry? How old were you roughly? Uh, at the time when the war broke out, I was 21 years old. Okay, but well, I, I I lived really abroad. I, I I lived abroad. I mean, I was visiting often, but I lived mm. I lived in, uh, in 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 Switzerland at the time. Okay, and um, this is why you know. Okay, and then and then and then war war took off. You know, war broke out, and then you know for for the next few years, it was it was ugly. The war in Croatia. Uh, lasted between 1991 and 1995, um, but it wasn't the same intensity the whole time. So it was really ugly in 1991 and 1992, and then things, uh, you know, the, the conflict kind of froze up. It was a, it was like a stalemate. 35% of Croatia was still occupied by by the, you know, Serbian Yugoslavian forces, whatever. And then we had the the big push to 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 liberate these areas in 1995. So th mm -hmm. those were the two periods of big big fighting. I think we lost about 10,000 troops, but generally life went on. You know, people went to work, children went to school, the economy chugged along. Uh, people built houses. You know, uh, life life was just. I'm not going to say normal, but a lot of aspects of normal life just 
continued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and this is pretty much, I think, the case with with all wars and, and every war. But the the thing that I only started to appreciate much much later in my life, because you know, uh, when you're in war, you're not you're not necessarily aware of the broader context in which this war is happening and i think the best the best way to think of it is the is the metaphor that i heard from from david attenborough and he said um that if you put 100 red ants and 100 black ants into a glass jar and you observe what happens nothing happens yeah but then if you take that glass jar and you shake it up violently then the ants start fighting each other and killing each other right and as far as the ants are concerned you know some some emergency happened they got agitated they got very scared they get very scared and then they lash out against the other because they they can't explain this emergency otherwise than the presence of the other right mm-hmm. whereas somebody shook up the jar you know in, in the broader con- the broader con- context of this conflict is that somebody shook up the jar and very what what we now know what we now know for sure is that somebody shook up the yugoslav jar not only that but you know like they had agent provocateurs working mm. to raise tensions to mm. uh, induce fear among the peoples of Yugoslavia to say that oh you know the croats will you know slaughter the the serbs and so the serbs mm. felt afraid and they started creating barricades on the roads and and blocking traffic and 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 rebelling mm. um when when croatia seceded and became an independent nation and you know this this was going on in among all the peoples but it was done deliberately it wasn't you know like in the western press you at the time you would have read about the centuries of hatreds between the yeah, different yeah. peoples of yugoslavia and this this irrational uh inclination to violence and you know everybody everybody thought of us as inferior barbarians who were violent yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who were ready to go to war on 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 any small pretext because they they just like can't keep this hatred of the other side bottled up any longer mm. but this is not how it happened this is not this is not at all the truth the, the conflict was deliberately triggered and deliberately orchestrated and the people were simply manipulated into into falling into these hostilities out of out of fear yeah. um again back then in the in the late 80s and early 90s we didn't have the internet you know so we were still being manipulated by the by the uh, you know information disseminated from central sources and it worked mm. I, I i feel that today it isn't working you know today we are today we are being encouraged to hate and loathe the russians and to be ready to go to war against russia uh but people are not feeling it and you know like if you look at the if you look at the at, at the informal polls that are appearing in the social media you see that 
actually, even in the West, where Russia has been demonized systematically for two decades now, and where censorship is really heavy-handed and all the Russian sources have been taken off the air and, 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 and blocked, the majority of people in Europe sympathize with the Russian side. They may be the silent majority because they don't yeah. know that they're the majority, but it's something like between 70 and 80% of the people sympathize with the Russian side. And even in the NATO, this, they, they understand this. I, 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 a friend, a friend who works uh, for NATO in one of the NATO member nations wrote to me, and she said that NATO was uh, paying close attention to the public sentiment with regards to war in Ukraine. And she told me that all the all the Eastern European countries and the and the and countries in the Balkans are about three out of four sympathize with the Russian side. And then countries like Spain, France, Italy, Austria, it's about two out of three. So that's like the large majority of people actually favor Russia. But, you know, there's, there's hysteria going on. Uh, all the legacy media and all the public figures cannot, you know, it would be... It would be business suicide, career suicide to, to, to state this out in the open, but that's the reality. And, you know, that's how people feel. That's what they think. And so the consequence is that everybody is extremely reluctant to be, um, to be hyped up for the big world war two, three. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic that it, it's not going to, that it's not going to be as bad as 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 it might be otherwise yeah i mean if you if you take any amount of people off the street and ask them do you support war which is legalized murder of, of your fellow man woman and 52 other genders who the hell would who the hell would support it 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 can only happen through manipulation through the use of first fear or traumatic events, fear, uh, and then agitation of the masses. That's yeah. the only way. I mean, that's how you know thousands and thousands of American kids <laughs> got shipped off to you know the Middle East to you know slaughter slaughter their basically their brothers and sisters because at the core of it we are just brothers and sisters. Yeah, we are correct. We're like a large clan here on on Earth, you know. It's, but it it is it is really it's like the Wizard of Oz, you know. Like you know, people like like you and me, we know enough to you can see through the bullshit. Um, <laughs> and with a little bit of education, most people can start to 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 think a little bit more critically about. Um, you know, new events. The problem is, I, I believe one of the problems that we're faced with is these guys, you know, co- COVID was the, well, not the opening salvo, but for this, let's say, chapter, that was the opening salvo. And you can you can bet that they they have they have other tricks up their sleeve, you know, so we can't really get complacent and, and start thinking, you know, it's gonna be okay. Even if it's okay in the end, you know, I, I I think there will be a lot of tumult 
along the way and i it's possible that many will not make it on the other side um but uh i do like i do like your optimism alex you know uh i know i know you're a little bit after a trip so i i don't want to keep you for much longer i just wanted to to ask you one final couple a final couple of questions i wanted to i know you're i know kind of from previous interviews that i've listened uh of you i know your stance on ai and i when i heard you the first time talk about ai and you know how how powerful it can get i'm like i told you i this guy gets it you know that's i, I really so um you know maybe you can elaborate what your stance is on ai to the folks but what i i would like to you to potentially also discuss is chat gpt so actually chat gpt every time i've, I've tried to log to a couple of two or three times on it it will it always tells me it's at capacity while someone else is allowed to use it like on the other side of the phone like someone i was working with was using it i'm like dude it's not letting me on so it's probably because i'm using brave browser with a vpn and whatever it's like i can't i can't tell who you are pleb therefore you're not allowed to use me but um Tell me, what do you think is this uh, the goal of this uh, chat GPT now? And, you know, tell the listeners who are worried that the AI is going to fucking, uh, you know, turn us into batteries and take over the world and all that good stuff. Uh, maybe allay some of those concerns if you, if, if you if you think that is indeed the case. Uh, yeah, well, so the, 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 the reason why I get it is the, because I spent many years in my life uh, running an AI development project. You know, I'm, I'm not a software programmer, but, you know, I work with a, with a team of researchers and software engineers on an AI solution, in my case, to the problem of uh, market speculation, right? And what I learned through that project is how extraordinarily difficult it is to put together something that actually functions correctly and reliably in accordance with your specifications and does what you intend it to do. And the program that we developed is a form of AI. And, uh, you know, we, we have to be careful about understanding that when they say artificial intelligence, it's mostly artificial. It's much less intelligence. And, mm. you know, if you want to get deeper into it, you have to even try to figure out what do we mean by intelligence? So today's AI applications are uh, very impressive when you're talking about language uh, models, right? So um simple things like spelling more complex things like grammar uh the, the tools are phenomenal uh even even fetching you answers to questions very impressive but it's all based on language right it's all language based um what it is actually is not really intelligence it's these massive if then else loops yeah. that then link to database tables which are generated you know you, you could automatically generate a database table of certain types of value collect massive amounts of data into that table of a similar kind 
develop like a, like a distribution curve of how frequently certain results happen or how infrequently they happen. You can calculate the most likely result. And then you can say, well, it's probably this. And, you know, in most cases, it's going to be turning up to be correct. But you'll also notice that when it comes to visual analysis, right, that you take a picture and you have to work out what's in the picture, it's, it's, it's much more difficult, particularly when the picture is moving. If it's a still, mm. not bad. If it's a moving picture, it's much, much more difficult. And I have to say, to be fair, they've, they've, de they've developed very impressive um, applications that can look at the film through a camera and detect what's in the film. This is extremely difficult. I, I don't know if, if people understand what stereograms are. You know, stereograms were these, um, these printed blotches, these images that seem to, to, it seems like there's nothing, just, just like a blotch, but there's actually a pattern in it. And so now bear with me because this is, this is kind of important as a distinction between actual intelligence and artificial kind. So the, uh, I don't know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, these stereograms became very, very popular because uh, what you could do is you could take a stereogram, right? You, you could look at it in a certain way and out of this unintelligible blotch, a 3D image would pop up, right? And it's quite, quite, quite an incredible experience because it's like, oh my God, you know, like this, there's a, there's a picture of a, of a, of a, of a ball in here or whatever. How could that possibly be? So basically what happens in your brain completely outside of your awareness is that when you stare at that image and you even have to stare so that it's slightly out of focus, right? When you stare at that image, your brain automatically identifies that there's a pattern in this blotch. Like mm -hmm. even this first step would be extremely difficult for, for, a, for a software program to accomplish. So your brain finds a pattern. And then next, it makes the guess that if I see a pattern here, the pattern should be uniform everywhere. But it's interrupted in certain places, right? Because that's what stereograms are. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pattern that's difficult to tell, like when you're looking at it normally, but the pattern is in there mm -hmm. and it's interrupted in certain places. So like, let's say a certain dot is skipped in some places. And then your brain makes the next guess, like why is this pattern interrupted in certain places? And then it makes the guess, huh, maybe because part of the picture is at a different plane. So when I look at it, this closer part of the image covers up the farther part of the image. So even though the pattern is continuous and intact, I can't see part of it because this, this part of the image is, is at a higher plane. And at that moment, this part of the image pops out like it's in 3D. Of course, it's not in 3D. Your brain creates this illusion, but the way it creates this illusion is the result of real intelligence because not only did it identify a pattern in the image, but then it also 
made a guess first that the pattern is fully intact and uninterrupted, uninterrupted. And then it made the next guess that the reason why it appears interrupted in some places is because it's actually a 3D image, not a 2D image. And then the part of the part of the image covers the bits of the pattern that you don't see. Okay. Right. That's real intelligence. Uh, it would be impossible for a computer program to just pull up these guesses out of thin air. These sorts of hypotheses would have to be hardwired into a program. Otherwise, the computer could never uh, create a 3D image. Now, that's stereograms, okay? It's a, it's a trick thing that taught us very important lessons about the way our brains work. But the fact is that our brains um, analyze patterns in the world around us and generate hypotheses and guesses about what we're perceiving absolutely all the time. It's not obvious to us because like with the stereograms, it happens in the background. It happens outside of our conscious awareness. You know, like when you look at the stereograms, it's not like... It's not like you, you can hear your brain generate language that says like, oh, let's see, we have a pattern here. Hmm, and why is this hmm. pattern? You know, like yeah. you, you don't perceive any of this. You don't, you don't hear this uh, uh, thought process. Your brain just gives you the solution. And yeah. that solution is produced with real, actual, organic intelligence. This kind of intelligence is not available to computers because they, 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 they have nowhere to draw these these hypotheses from and, and in fact the way we formulate hypotheses even consciously let alone unconsciously is a great mystery it's it's it's, yeah. it's difficult to explain it's part of our consciousness which is what science calls the difficult problem because they have no idea how to explain it where it comes from what it is it's just there yeah, and yeah. that's part of real intelligence and you know the 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 difference between real intelligence and artificial intelligence is a, is is an unbridgeable gap at the moment, and it will probably always be an unbridgeable gap. Okay, having settled that, long story. But there's another reason why I'm not too concerned with artificial intelligence. So suppose you put together a very very sophisticated program that even was very good at you know uh, uh, analyzing visual content and real time moving pictures and so forth. You still need massive databases where all this information is stored. These databases have to be available for analysis in the real time. You need sensors that function flawlessly. You need a connection between inputs and outputs that function reliably and flawlessly. You need maintenance because, you know, like it's not like once you put together a software program, as you know, that it just magically functions forever. You know, maybe, you know, the, the operating system changes, you know, there's an upgrade to the operating system. Now nothing works. Now you have to get the developers again to fix the to fix the bug. Right. This is nonstop process. This, this never stops. Uh, all the software is written in code. Reading code and understanding what you're reading is a very highly advanced skill that not everybody has <laughs> if yeah. people are sloppy about documenting their codes 
even the developers themselves who wrote the code, yes. you know, a few weeks later might not even yeah. remember what the hell was I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't remember, right? Yeah, yeah. So the maintenance of these of these uh, uh, products is is a difficult problem, and I think that the more complex the application, the more difficult the maintenance is. And yeah. you know, this is not this is not publicized widely, but many 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 software projects ultimately fail, even if they even if they were built with infinite um, resources, and even if they're you know, like even if people who are running them have access to all the, you know, uh, take take Metaverse. So Metaverse has been one of the very important uh, projects for the uh, for these globalists because you know, like they want us they want us bend into place in fifteen minute city cities to uh, to live our full lives in this Metaverse. So uh, Facebook Meta. They, they started this project already many years ago and they decided at the outset that they, they needed a special operating system to make this work. And so they started, they hired a, a large team of developers, I think like 100 or 150 developers to create a brand new specialized operating system on top of which the metaverse would be programmed. Well, that project failed completely. Uh, Facebook fired all of these developers, scrapped the thing completely, and then decided that they were going to try to build Metaverse on, on Google's uh, operating system. Hmm. Is it going to work out? I don't know. But, you know, it's, it, it's hard. It's not, it's not just, you know, people imagine you just get these genius programmers and they just build you whatever you like. It's not yeah. like that. You know, like we, we, we see the F-35 uh, fighter jet, you know, trillion dollars in development they're 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 in a morass of software problem problems which are the chief reason why the the whole project is failing um mm. the british intelligence uh, agencies all wanted to some years ago integrate their databases so that you know what what mi5 collects uh, was available to mi6 and G gchq and whoever uh that problem that that project went on for several years they spent i think something like 150 million pounds on it they scrapped the whole thing all together and then they started anew that happened so yeah. uh ai in in the form of skynet the kind of ai that they're trying to scare the daylights out of everybody with is probably never going to exist it it might be it might be a hodgepodge of patches and and and, and projects and yeah. applications with limited scope and some of it will be impressive looking but you know skynet's not coming anytime soon i think the the, the funniest and most uh, brilliant example of of this is a couple of years ago you know they had some places where you had the QR code and you had to scan it with the app in order to be allowed entry or whatever else and people were like thwart uh, thwart this bullshit just take a, a permanent marker and just do, draw a little tiny little square in one of the white spaces on the QR code 
the whole thing fucking falls apart. You exactly. Know? So yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. There you go. So, it, that, but that's that's a fantastic point because very often these very high tech solutions are extremely fragile and vulnerable to very uh, low tech uh, sabotage <laughs> solutions. You know, like I don't know. If, People see these general dynamics, uh, robot dogs, and now, yeah. you know, they're mounting guns on them. So these yeah. robot dogs are going to go around shooting people. Well, guess what? You know, like you can probably, you could probably disable the robot dog with a blanket or a net or, 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 or a bucket of paint. <laughs> and then the whole a thing is going plastic trash bag, bro. Exactly. A plastic trash bag <laughs> to neutralize that threat. So like, yeah, I think yeah. that very often, you know, the, the, they're trying to create this mystique of these incredible things that are coming and we're just going to be completely helpless victims and they're going to be, you know, yeah, doing whatever they want with this AI stuff. That's not going to happen. It's not, it's not like that. And, you know, like I, I also heard with regards to QR codes, how, uh, in the, you know, like during the thick of the pandemic, you know, the, 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 in New York, when they when they uh, developed these um, uh, vaccine passes, mm -hmm. the New York City created one solution, and the New York State created a different solution, which caused a complete mayhem. With like, you know, like you had QR code issued issued by one authority that wouldn't be recognized by censors yeah. that read, you know, reported to the other authority. So it was a complete mess. So. You know, again, developing technologies, it's a very, very delicate business. You have to yeah, start off with yeah. a very, very clear uh, plan and statement of purpose. All your developers have to clearly understand the statement of purpose. Then you have to develop very, very detailed specifications and all of this. It's it, it's not being done. And you know, what, you know what you really need as well is you need your product or service to have demand you need if if you're trying to uh you know communist style fascist style top down dictate things it's going to lead to one set of outcomes if there is a great for example meta the metaverse bullshit project the reason it's failing is because uh mark nobody asked for this no not one person asked for it but what are we asking for? We are asking for uh, uh, convenience when it comes to our groceries or our fast food. That's why there's many successful companies out there uh, that are doing it really well. You know, you got your DoorDashes in the States and all this other stuff and Uber Eats. That, that There's a demand, so that works. When, when it comes to the government using misappro uh, uh, misappropriating funds that they uh, pretty much stole... There's no incentive to provide a good service. There's no demand. So there's all the kind of free market variables missing. Uh, and of course, these these projects, they, they become overly complicated, overly complex, and <laughs> they're bound to fail. It's complex and as much as they think they can lock down the grip with as much as they can use. We, I don't even think it should be called uh, artificial intelligence. I think the less sexy name is more appropriate, machine learning. Because machines can, and like you, you yes. brilliantly put it, they can store data in databases, and they can use algorithms to analyze that and categorize that data and 
make decisions based on uh, convoluted if-then-else statements. Not much else. They can't perceive. Correct. They can't, like you say, they don't. They don't have divine inspiration, which is a human can tap into, and a bunch of other things. Consciousness Correct. is a yeah. part of. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And I think you're also making an excellent point that nobody asked for this. This is. These are solutions that. Uh, nobody needs, nobody wants, and they are being forced <laughs> down on uh, yeah. on us to suit somebody else's desires, and things like that generally don't catch on and don't work. And people just, you know, we we, we don't even have to we don't ever even have to uh, watch them fail because people people ultimately will just uh, migrate towards solutions that they actually do want and do uh, that do make help make their lives better yeah absolutely all right alex i really appreciate you coming on i love how i love the um uh the the breadth and the depth of your ability to take pretty much any subject and you know go as deep and as wide as as desired um before we wrap up, please let uh, basically the list, the listeners know what uh, you know the your main channels of uh, where they can connect with you on the internet are, please. Yeah, well, uh, I have a few. The easiest, I think, is a uh, Twitter. Uh, my my handle is at Naked Hedgy. Uh, yeah, then I have sub a Substack called Alex Craner's Trend Compass. I have a blog called The Naked Hedgy, right? Uh, I have a YouTube channel where, unfortunately, I don't post so much because I've discovered that YouTube is a lot of work. Doing video yeah, content yeah. is a is a is yes. a is a job, and it's part of yeah. my 2023 uh, New Year New Year's resolution to produce more <laughs> uh, video content. <laughs> so far, so far, I haven't gotten around to it. Uh, yeah, my video channel is called Markets, Trends, and Profits, and I also have for people who are more interested in things like trading and investing and, uh, you know, commodities markets and so forth. I, I have a professional website called iSystem Trend Following. And, uh, yeah, that's basically, that's basically it. We have all those in the description. Um, I, I recommend folks check out, uh, subscribe to the Substack. Uh, some really good articles coming out there from Alex. Uh, w w one question, though. Why don't you have a podcast, bro? Like, come on. Come on. Yeah, uh, I, I asked myself the same question, Chris. Uh, I, I think that, very honestly, I, I will have to petition for a 48-hour day. I'm, really, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm strained. There are, there are many things to do. And, I, you know, like, I, you know, in addition to all this, I have a day job. Well, you know, like, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a job job. I'm, a, I'm like an independent uh artist but i do have artist well artist artisan whatever you know <laughs> you know like uh, i have a you know like i i i've almost kind of diverged between because you know like i started off all this as a as a as a former hedge fund manager you know like i started yeah. producing a, a market newsletter uh it's just that you know like these all these events, the pandemic, the 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 war, uh, and everything, kind of diverted my attention because I reckon, okay, what what's what's the point of all these nice trades and profits if if we if we all end up in some dystopian nightmare of a future yeah. where we will own nothing and and be unhappy? 
So, yeah. you know, I, I, a lot of what I produce now, a lot of what I write about is not really even related to markets and, and, and commodities yeah, yeah. trading. But I think it's nevertheless relevant to the challenges that we're, we're facing, which include, you know, like trading, managing your portfolio is legitimate because they do want us mm. to own nothing and we are yeah. under attack and inflation is a serious problem for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's part of where I focus my attention. The other part of where I focus my attention are all these social changes and economic changes and geopolitical changes that are taking place that are going to have a massive impact on what the future of our societies is going to look like. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, podcasting would definitely be a, an important part of it, that, you know, uh, activism, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there's only so many hours in the day. Listen, and, uh, that, Alex, yeah. listen, I um, completely get you. So here's your two solutions. You just divide every hour by two. You boom, have doubled your hours. Okay. Easy solution there. <laughs> and... and the other listen listen to this now yesterday i woke up at about five in the morning sometimes wake up at like between three and five a.m for whatever reason so it's my quiet time so yesterday i got my coffee i have a, a red uh led light therapy lamp so i'm shining my back in my underwear on a little stool and i recorded a 42 minute episode on the, um how autoimmune uh how autoimmunity develops in my underwear sipping on my coffee that's how easy podcasting can be and if you need if, if you want i can help you get set up fast uh, just let okay. me know i uh, listen I, I i'm glad you said that and i'll uh, i'll take you up on that that's brilliant but like you know like when we're when we're on that you know like why not divide your hours in the day by four then you multiply them then you quadruple your your hours because this isn't some magical fairy tale land here bro that we're at <laughs> okay you can't be unreasonable you can't be unreasonable with your requests like that come on <laughs> okay okay i like that i like that that's that's uh that's lucid that's funny <laughs> all right uh so, all right guys uh thank you so much for tuning in to the podcast check out again Check out uh, Alex's blog, The Naked Hedgie, link below. Subscribe to his Substack, link will be below. Really, really good information there. I'll have links to his other stuff, of course. Some good videos on his channel related to trading, um, trend following, and you know, just markets and economics and stuff like that. Alex Craner, you're always welcome back on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, bro. Uh, always with pleasure, Chris, and uh, until the next happy occasion.